Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Canada 150 a meta-narrative special. Want to learn about 150 years of Canadian history in under 30 minutes? Well, in commemoration of Canada's 150th birthday, I have written a special meta-narrative episode that attempts to cover the grand story of Canada's last 150 years. Now, meta-narratives are very tough, as they are, of course, designed to cover long periods of time in not-so-specific detail in a shorter period. And there is no question I have left many things out in my attempt, but hopefully I have covered some of the big events and key moments that have defined Canada's historical and national path. However, I must in advance ask for forgiveness from you, the listener, in case I've missed anything you deem important. Please forgive me. In that spirit, happy Canada Day. A reminder, you can find us at our website, coolcanadianhistory.com, and on Facebook. Both places will give you the option to donate to our podcast via PayPal and Patreon. Both links, that is PayPal and Patreon, provide secure methods to support this podcast. We cannot survive without donations from listeners like you, and we thank you for your continued support. Speaking of support, today's episode goes out to Cam Paddock from North Vancouver. Cam wrote to us to let us know he has downloaded all our episodes for a trip to Europe with his wife and daughter. All the best in Europe, Cam. Safe travels, and thanks for your support. Here we go. At Confederation, 1st of July, 1867, Canada was a small fragment of the nation that we see today on a map. We only had four provinces, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Quebec, and Ontario. Though Ontario was only about one quarter the size of the Ontario that we see today, and Quebec had yet to expand its provincial boundaries as far north as it currently stands. Our population was roughly 3.4 million people. Compare this to the 36 million people living in the United States, who had of course been officially independent from Britain since 1783. Where was the rest of Canada, you ask? Pretty much everything west of tiny Ontario, except the colony of British Columbia, was called Rupert's Land. Though certainly part of the larger British Empire, the territory of Rupert's Land was owned by the Hudson's Bay Company. That's right, 
the modern-day bay that seems to always have great sails. Rupert's Land included the modern-day provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the modern territories of the Northwest Territories, the Yukon, and none of it, not to mention the rest of the territory that would one day make up the larger part of northern Ontario. British Columbia was its own British colony with its own problems, coping with the gold rush that saw thousands of new arrivals coming in every month. Not only was Canada a fraction of its current size, but in the early days of Confederation, we almost lost Nova Scotia. Serious grumblings occurred within that province from basically July 2nd onwards, and in fact, anti-Confederationist candidates almost completely swept the Nova Scotia legislature in the aftermath of Confederation. If it wasn't for the hard political work of Charles Tupper and later Joseph Howe, we may have very well lost the peninsular province back into the folds of the British Empire. A rocky start, indeed. Very much the goal of the Founding Fathers of Confederation was to see Canada expand and grow westward. In many ways, they hoped to emulate the dramatic growth of the United States through its exploitation of the West. Standing in the way of this great Canadian expansion was the fact that Rupert's Land was Hudson's Bay Company-owned, and that most of the inhabitants of that land were First Nations and Métis peoples not so eager to allow Ottawa to annex their traditional territory. The first obstacle, the Hudson's Bay Company owned Rupert's Land, was overcome in what we might call the first of the Bay Day sales when it was sold under great pressure from Great Britain by the Hudson's Bay Company to the Canadian government for $1.5 million in 1869. That is 8 million square kilometers for one and a half million dollars, a steal of a deal. To put this in perspective, the Americans had bought Alaska, about one and a half million square kilometers, for the hefty price of $7.2 million from Russia, though at the time that was also seen as a steal of a deal. Now, the annexation of the West was not going to be as simple as our first Prime Minister John A. Macdonald hoped. The major settlement of the West at the time was in the Red River area, modern-day Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the surrounding regions. It was only natural that this quote-unquote gateway to the West would be turned into the first Western province. However, the local First Nations and Métis, who had lived in the area for long before the Canadians arrived, resisted this attempt. Under the leadership of Louis Riel, a Red River provisional government was established to negotiate better terms of confederation for what was going to become the province of Manitoba. When negotiations turned sour and violence ensued, the Canadian government sent out the military, and Riel and his followers fled. The postage stamp province of Manitoba, called that because it was really tiny square of a province, was thus officially incorporated into Canada in 1870. The next couple of years saw Canada expand even more dramatically. British Columbia joined in 1871 with some of the best terms of confederation any province was ever able to negotiate. This included, of course, the promise of a federally funded railway connecting the Pacific and Atlantic coasts. 
1873, Prince Edward Island was finally convinced to join when its own debt became too much to manage alone. So by 1873, things were looking good for the young country. It had a coast-to-coast nation, though really only on paper, as the railway would not be finished until 1885, and the nation could now boast a population of 3.8 million people. Though there was still a large chunk of territory between British Columbia and Manitoba, known colloquially as the Northwest Territories, this land was pretty much occupied by various groups of First Nations who were going to pose further problems for the Canadian government's expansionist ideals. These problems would surface in 1885 in what came to be called the Northwest Rebellion in modern-day Saskatchewan. As the Canadian government sought to open up more land for immigration, it ran headlong into the traditional territory of a variety of First Nation groups, mostly Cree and Blackfoot, as well as many of the Métis who had fled the Red River in the aftermath of the Canadian annexation of Manitoba. The Cree and Blackfoot, like many of the First Nations of British North America and Canada, had been growing increasingly frustrated with a government that had promised them support if they would move to reserves and instead reneged on most of those treaty promises. At the same time, the Métis, led once again by Louis Riel, hoped to negotiate with the Canadian government for better protection for First Nations and Métis land rights. The government, however, was wholly unwilling to negotiate for any terms, and a full-blown conflict erupted in the region. Once again, Canada sent out a military expedition, this time traveling on the brand new Canadian Pacific Railway line. After several small battles, the Métis and First Nation rebels were defeated at Batoche late in 1885, and the rebellion was over. Louis Riel and many prominent First Nation leaders were executed. The rebellion became a spark for further repressive measures against First Nation groups already devastated by disease and hunger, helping push them further to the political, economic, and social margins of this new Canadian society. So with the quote-unquote opening of Rupert's Land and the Northwest Territories, the Canadian government began to actively and aggressively promote immigration to the prairies. This campaign was entirely aimed at the white peoples of Great Britain and most of Europe, and the latter part of the 19th century saw tens of thousands of British, Scandinavians, Germans, Ukrainians, Poles, French, and a variety of other European groups arrive, with the promise of cheap and sometimes even free land. But during this late 19th and early 20th century period of immigration, our cultural makeup was starting to shift from the earlier Canadian vision of a white Canada. As black Americans began to come up to the prairies from the United States, and at the very same time, B.C. saw significant numbers of Chinese, Japanese, and Indians arrive from the Pacific, an early multicultural framework was starting to form. But make no mistake, the planners, the politicians, and those that envisioned the future of Canada at this time surely envisioned a white Canada. As more and more people arrived, agricultural communities began to blossom on the prairies. To serve these agricultural communities, a number of small towns were formed and began to grow. Some of these locations developed in areas where once simple fur trading forts stood, Fort Edmonton and Fort Calgary, for instance 
while other places like Regina and Saskatoon were built along key railway and river links. By the early 20th century, Canada's smaller cities were starting to take shape. This growth, both urban and rural, eventually paved the way for the 1905 incorporation of the provinces of Saskatchewan and Alberta into Canadian Confederation. The modern Canadian map was now slowly taking shape. As an aside, the Yukon was added as a territory in 1898 as a separate political entity that was sort of split from the still large and relatively underpopulated Northwest Territories. As Canada grew in size and population, more and more people, primarily in English-speaking Canada, clamored for a greater participatory role within the larger British Empire. This participation was, to many, a marker of a young but maturing nation. The public cheered when 300 coureurs de bois participated in the Nile expedition in 1884-85 to relieve a British garrison besieged at Khartoum during the Mahdist War. Young English-speaking Canadian men rallied to the Union Jack in 1899 when Britain declared war against the Boers of South Africa. By that war's end, 7,000 Canadians, including 12 female nurses, would serve in South Africa, with 267 losing their lives. 1914 would once again see feverish imperial patriotism from English Canada when Britain declared war on Germany. The First World War, however, would be a national war experience that no one could have ever predicted. The Great War, or as it is more comically known, the war to end all wars, was a catalyst for significant change within Canada as the nation struggled to keep pace with the demands of the world's first total industrialized war. In terms of Canada's military commitment, the country would eventually put 620,000 men and women into service. Of those, 60,000 paid the ultimate price, approximately 3% of Canada's population at the time. The Canadian battle experience includes some of the most famous battles of the entire war. The Battle of Second Ypres, or more colloquially known as the First Gas Attack. The Battle of Corselette during the Somme Offensive, where tanks were first used in battle. The Great Battle of Vimy Ridge. The bloody mess that was the Battle of Passchendaele. By 1918, the Canadian Corps had risen to prominence as one of the strongest and most effective corps formations on the entire Western Front. The Corps, under the leadership of Canadian Arthur Currie, would spearhead the 100 Days Campaign in 1918, the offensive against the German military that finally brought the war to a crushing end. At home, the First World War saw dramatic challenges as well. Under the auspices of the War Measures Act, Prime Minister Robert Borden's conservative government was able to take unprecedented control of the nation and oversaw, in particular, an agricultural and munitions industry that expanded well beyond what any Canadian could have thought possible. In order to win the 1917 federal election and thus ensure the passage of conscription, Borden enfranchised daughters, sisters, and wives of serving Canadian soldiers, the first time women were allowed to vote federally in Canada. Though a major step forward for women's rights, the 1917 federal election saw Quebec politically isolated, and in response to the enforcement of conscription, in 1918 the province responded in riots. In Easter, 
1918, a large protest turned deadly when soldiers opened fire on a Quebec crowd, killing several of the civilians. The Easter riots shocked the nation, and the issue of conscription would leave a bitter legacy in French-English relations going forward. That wasn't the only event to leave a bitter taste in a Canadian community. The War Measures Act gave the government the power to forcibly intern thousands of those deemed to have originated from enemy states, the majority of those being Ukrainians from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, originally lured to Canada with promises by the Canadian government of cheap land and now deemed enemies of the state. The end of the war brought a sudden crash to Canada's dramatic economic growth, and the country experienced a stark recession in the immediate years following the armistice. In 1919, in reaction to years of government repression of labor rights, workers in Winnipeg triggered a massive general strike. After violent clashes broke out between strikers and a variety of police, military, and paramilitary groups, the strike came to an end with the promises of a royal commission. This royal commission surprised many when it found that in general the demands of the strikers were legitimate. This official recognition of labor rights was a major turning point for the labor movement's acceptance within the broader Canada. The recession only lasted two years, and it was followed by several years of growing prosperity. Canadian rum runners in particular enjoyed a period of prosperity during the 1920s, as they shipped alcohol across the border and into Prohibition United States, facilitated in many cases by American gangsters and organized crime. It was, however, the American stock market crash of 1929 that triggered a decade of economic depression, a depression that characterized the interwar period in Canada, North America, and much of the world. In response to the inability of the federal and provincial governments to alleviate the growing crisis of the 1930s, a series of important political movements rose up to attempt to find a solution. Of these, the most well-known were the Social Credit Party, originating in Alberta, and the Co-op Commonwealth Federation. The CCF eventually became the modern-day NDP. Sadly, even these challenges to the political status quo could do little for the average Canadian, and it was not really until Canada was plunged into another war that the country truly pulled out of the worst economic crisis in global history. That war came in September of 1939, and though thousands of Canadian men and women once again volunteered to go overseas, the feverish imperial patriotism of the past was long gone. The world's second total industrial war would once again be a catalyst for dramatic growth and change within Canada. On the battlefield, Canada would see its military grow to become the fifth largest in the world. It played prominent roles in the invasion of Europe, highlighted by 1st Canadian Army's liberation route through France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, and then into Germany itself. Canadian airmen participated all over the globe in numerous operations, most notably Number 6 Bomber Group's involvement in the controversial bomber offensive. The Canadian Navy, too, served all over the world, but its most significant contribution was the inglorious yet crucial task of shepherding merchant vessels across the North Atlantic, keeping open the crucial lifeline of supplies from North America to Great Britain. 
as well. This war saw the recruitment of tens of thousands of Canadian women who served in a variety of roles beyond the traditional sphere of military nursing. At home, Liberal Prime Minister Mackenzie King steered Canada through the war under the auspices of the War Measures Act. He would avoid a conscription crisis like that seen in the First World War, though conscription was eventually enforced. In order to avoid a post-war recession like that seen in 1919, King would sow the seeds of a social welfare state, enacting some of Canada's first social security measures. Not all was, of course, a rosy narrative of progress. Once again, the War Measures Act gave the government unprecedented power, and this time they used it to intern a whole new group of people deemed a threat to the state, Japanese Canadians. Tens of thousands of Japanese Canadians, most of them living in B.C., were rounded up and shipped to internment camps. Most of them had been either born in Canada or had become Canadian citizens. Their homes, land, property, and businesses were all sold to the highest Caucasian bidder. Many of these families were forced to start all over again once the war finished. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In the aftermath of the war, Canada was stronger economically than it had ever been. Though it rapidly demobilized its significantly large military, its economy kept moving forward, helped in particular by the demands of Europe rebuilding after such a devastating war. Canadians were thus, by the late 1940s and early 1950s, better off than they had ever been before. In this growing economic climate, joining Canada seemed like a smart idea, especially for the island colony of Newfoundland. You see, the British colony had struggled with its own finances and found itself by the late 1940s in debt, with its finances being controlled directly from London, England. Thus, in 1949, Canada's final province joined. The modern map was almost entirely complete. By the 1950s, Canada faced a new world order that saw two nuclear superpowers facing off in a Cold War. Canadian politicians and the Canadian public struggled to figure out what role Canada was going to play in this new, ideologically frozen landscape. The late 1950s saw one of the potential answers when Canada led the world's first-ever United Nations peacekeeping force during the Suez Crisis of 1956-57. Lester B. Pearson, at the time Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs and future Prime Minister of Canada, was the architect of this UN peacekeeping force, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in successfully de-escalating the conflict. Peacekeeping would become a hallmark of Canada's international participation for much of the rest of the 20th century. Keeping the peace wasn't going to be just an international mandate for Canada. At home, the federal government struggled with a growing sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo. 
The 1960s saw a number of broad movements that challenged both the government and society's position on a wide range of issues. Women activists successfully fought for greater reproductive rights. First Nation activists fought for greater recognition of the wrongs done to the First Nations community in Canada. Ethnic minorities, gays and lesbians, youth, all sought to challenge the domestic tranquility of the status quo. Perhaps no other movement so threatened Canadian domestic peace, however, like the rise of the Quebec sovereignty movement that had emerged out of Quebec's quiet revolution of the 1960s. Though generally peaceful, a splinter group known as the FLQ sought violent means to achieve this independence, but this organization was crushed in 1970 during the October crisis. But it was only a few years later when the Parti Québécois, a provincial party devoted to separation through peaceful democratic means, would go on to win the 1976 Quebec provincial election. And in 1980, the PQ initiated Quebec's first referendum on separation. 60% of the province voted against splitting from Canada. A close call. But the separation movement was not done yet. You see... The separation movement gained even more momentum in the aftermath of the 1980 referendum, in what we now know as the Constitutional Crisis. This crisis was triggered by the efforts of then-Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and the Provincial Premiers of Canada to write Canada's own constitution, otherwise known as repatriating the constitution. You see, up to this point, our Constitution had been the 1867 British North America Act, an act written in London. The Constitution Act of 1982 formally gave Canada its own constitution in the form of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The problem was, Quebec refused to sign off on the document. This was due to a number of reasons, but most importantly, it was due to the fact that there was no mechanism for separation embedded within this new constitution. Now, legally, Quebec's signature was not required for the document to become the official Canadian constitution. Thus, many in Quebec felt slighted. Quebec's anger over this slight fueled separation sentiment in the province. During the late 1980s, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney would make two significant attempts to get Quebec to sign off on the Constitution, but he failed. In the aftermath of these failures, Quebec would once again go to the polls to see if her people were ready to leave Canada. The 1995 referendum once again saw the no side victorious, though this time by only the slimmest of margins. 50.58% voted no, to the 49.42% that voted yes. A collective sigh of relief by many Canadians inside and outside of Quebec was heard. The separatist movement would never gain this level of popularity again, but that story has yet to wrap up. The modern Canadian map was finally completed in 1999, when the Northwest Territories was split once again to create the new territory of none of it, the largest and most northern territory in Canada. This territory is the historical and ancestral land for many of the Inuit of the Canadian Arctic. Canada seemed to enter the 21st century with great optimism. The Cold War had ended without nuclear destruction, Canada had not been split apart by the Quebec separatist movement, and the nation's international prestige was at an all-time high. 
The optimism for the future was rapidly dashed, however, on September 11, 2001, when terrorists struck the United States in the worst attack since Pearl Harbor. In the aftermath of 9-11, much like after the Second World War, Canada was once again faced with the reality of figuring out its place in this far more confusing and still dangerous world. Canada rallied to the American side with the NATO-led invasion of Afghanistan, but balked on the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. Relations between our two countries became quite strained during this period, not to mention the Middle East has been in absolute chaos ever since. Frankly, we have found no legitimate answers or any consistent policy directions as we go forward in this very unpredictable 21st century. Issues like control of the Arctic, terrorism, the environment, our relationship with the United States, our relationship with the countries of Asia and the rest of the world, our changing identity as a multicultural country all create a whole host of questions and possibilities, though none that can be easily answered or easily predicted. At times we appear stronger than we ever have been before, and at other times we seem to flounder in the uncertainty of this young century. The past 150 years have been dynamic and dramatic. They have been full of great achievements, but have also had their fair share of sad and disgraceful moments. We are a country that has, however, continually learned from our past, and in almost every case, we have moved forward with a stronger, more open mind than the one we had yesterday. Though what it means to be Canadian is continually challenged on a day-to-day basis, there is no doubt that at the core of our spirit is a belief in progress, a desire to do right for the next generation, an acceptance to face our dark past, and an effort to right our wrongs. This provides an historical context that leads me to optimistically believe we will only see greater things to come for this nation as long as we continue to embrace this great spirit. Happy birthday, Canada. The true north, strong and free.